0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Nick C. I'm one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'll be talking with Bagila Bukharbaeva about her book, The Vanishing Generation, Faith and Uprising in Modern Uzbekistan. That book was published in 2019 by Indiana University Press. Bagila Bukhrabayeva is a former Central Asian correspondent for the Associated Press, and she is the winner of the Paul Klebnikov Courage in Journalism Award. Bagila, welcome to the show. Thank
2: you. Hello.
1: Baguila, welcome. And it's it's a real pleasure to have you um, on, on the show today to talk about your book, um, which I read. To, it was a real heavy book, but it was also a, a really great page turner. Um, and I'm excited to, to hear a little bit more about the writing process and, and how you came up with this project. Um, and, you know, when I was reading, I realized that this is both a personal story and a story about much bigger things that were happening in Uzbekistan um, since the fall of the Soviet Union. And so I'd like to start off by asking you about your own background, your neighbors in Tashkent, and how kind of your personal life and and these bigger events in Uzbekistan kind of are tangled up in the narrative that you've produced here in this book.
2: Yes, the book is basically about... uh Years after the Soviet collapse, under the first president after uh, Uzbekistan's independence, Islam Karimov, Um, like I grew up in the Soviet Union, uh, but luckily, um, towards the end of my school studies, uh, secondary school, the Soviet Union was already on the brink of a collapse. It was prehistoric years, and that kind of influenced my decision to become a journalist. My father was a journalist, and um, I guess it was genes, but at the same time, it was all about what was happening around us at the time. Um, so we were growing up in central Tashkent, in this big apartment block full of different people, very mixed um, ethnic backgrounds and social backgrounds. and. Um,
1: and so what, um, like what got you interested, so you mentioned that, that um, you kind of started your career as a journalist partially because of um, perestroika and the things that were happening around you, but also um, maybe you saw your father um, in his career as a journalist. Um, when did you decide to, I mean, tell us about, about your preparation as a journalist. Did you go to university or did you find some work somehow? How did that career develop over time?
2: Yes, my father was a host of a television program on Uzbek TV. Uh, We we were ethnic Kazakhs, and he was making a program specifically in Kazakh for the Kazakh community of Uzbekistan. Um, And he was also, like, in his spare time, was writing novels. (laughs) And... um, but I think I was saying that I wanted to be a journalist since I was a child, like even I think since I was three years old. But of course, I don't know, it was maybe uh, my parents or my dad who taught me to say that. I don't I'm not sure, but yes, and I was finishing school, it was prehistoric a bit at time when suddenly all the newspapers started writing all these exciting revelations about what uh, the Soviet history, what was really happening uh, uh, in the country or in the past, looking back and everything, and it struck a time. And then I really got excited seeing how important this profession was. And that's when I decided to go to university. I went to Tashkent State University. But then it was 89 when I joined the university. And two years later, the Soviet Union was gone. And uh, the course it just fell apart because it was all based on, on Soviet books and uh, ideology and everything. And uh, the, our lecturers didn't know what to teach us. And we would just come and hang around the corridors or <laughs> sit there and uh, not knowing what to do and not knowing exactly what we were training for and I personally didn't know what I was like a medium would be working for because uh, in uh, in Russia where all that central television and big media, newspapers, radio stations, they were still yes, kind of going and, uh, but we were already Uzbekistan, a different country where we had to start everything from scratch. Or, or we had like all Soviet uh, kind of newspapers, like Pravda Vostok, and all those like copies of bigger central newspapers, but provincial kind of. And, uh, and I couldn't imagine working for any uh, local media. So kind of idea of becoming a journalist was becoming you know, fake something. I was just like, where? We wasting our time basically (laughs) and my fellow students and and then I started studying because there was so much free time I started learning English thinking well (laughs) this I don't know that sounded interesting and uh, at the time some small businesses were opening some foreigners started appearing and um, I learning English mostly with an idea of maybe translating uh, for some foreign companies or working as a receptionist or something like this small.
1: And and so mm-hmm. um, so to get this straight, so um, while you're learning English, are you still technically enrolled in, in the university or did you finish your degree and kind of um, mm-hmm. not find an immediate outlet so then you kind of drifted into a different area, like how does that, I mean, so you said you started in 88 or 89, I can't remember. 89, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so literally your studies were kind of cut in half by the this, this mm-hmm. monumental event. So did you finish university?
2: Yeah, I did. Um, but yeah, I started learning English while I was still enrolled on the course, um, because Uh, We we had also a group of foreign students studying there, like doing journalism from India, Sri Lanka, African countries. It was like Soviet Union looked like from friendly countries. Invite students and give them the scholarships and and yes, maybe because of their presence, and I was yes learning English. And um, yeah, when I finished the university, yeah, I started working as a receptionist for some Pakistani company, which was doing small business or looking for ways to do some business in Pakistan. And I uh, did some translating work. But then luckily, uh, the BBC uh, I saw an advert in a newspaper saying that BBC is opening an office in Ashkandar and they need english speakers and also speak local languages and yes and i went and i passed the test and uh, yes and i got the job that was completely unexpectedly and uh, so yeah then i yes <laughs> stayed in the profession this
1: way yeah and and so this is how at some point if i remember correctly like you you either continue to work with the bbc and you also work with the associated press um, I know you go to Moscow at some point or at least you're working with um Moscow based kind of uh I guess the Associated Press. Um how did that happen?
2: No, yeah, after joining the BBC, like you know, two, three year, in two, three years I go to Grant to to master's in journalism in in the UK. I came Mm. to London, spent a year here, which also helped me and boosted my confidence that I knew that now I could work for bigger news organizations, uh, writing in English. And and yes, uh, that helped me to get the job with AP. Again, like uh, two years later, yeah, I got a call. No, yeah. Mm. Asking if I would be interested to join them, yeah. And then yes, uh, I worked in Central Asia, covering Central Asia for several years, and then uh, worked here in Moscow in Moscow Bureau for the Associated Press. Mm-hmm. It was two thousand seven eight, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And this, um, yeah, and so this is kind of. Interesting, because one part of the book, we, we follow your kind of story as a journalist and, and how this develops, um, but your book is also unique because of how you bring kind of um, another analysis of, of several individuals, many of whom you either interviewed later or who you knew, in some cases, knew from a young age. Um, so, for instance, this, this family um, who, in the book, you, re- you refer to this young woman as Zuhra Um, But you talk about her siblings, her parents, um, and they kind of grow up next to you. Um, There are parallels within your life. There are similarities. There are moments when your trajectories go in different ways. But it's kind of interesting to see how these lives end up overlapping in in interesting ways. But could you tell us a little bit about um, their upbringing, that family, Mm -hmm. and how they were representative or unique of their generation? And also kind of share a little bit about how um, the question of religion, right, which is at the center of of your book, kind of plays into their lives.
2: Yeah. When I left the AP in 2008, um, basically because I was tired of these very difficult stories, um, because you go around and speak to people and they tell you horrible things. It was really hard. And... um, and I returned to Tashkent and then and I was back in my neighborhood and I see this neighbor every day or like quite often who is um, um, the father of Zohra, and obviously her siblings. Uh, and Zuhra is my childhood friend. We grew up in the same apartment block playing together. But then she went to in Uzbek school and I went to Russian school and uh, that kind of way we didn't uh, contact much each other later when growing up but it was from more like early years Um, but anyway you're still in the same neighborhood, in the same apartment block, you see them, you say hello and uh, you know what's going on in their lives too because you know from neighbors, yeah, your mom comes and tells you in this family and this happens and everything. so they're always in the picture they're like people you've known for, like for many many years and uh, what happened with their family uh, basically the father um mm-hmm. he he was a forestry minister in Soviet Uzbekistan, so he was quite a high-ranking official, and um, and Zohra, his daughter, and uh, one of eight, I think, siblings, and uh, Zohra had, yeah, two older sisters and then five brothers, and uh, and one of her brothers, or elder brothers, eventually becomes. The, later becomes an underground Islamic preacher. And her youngest brother also goes to study to um, Egypt, then ends up in Yemen, and then ends up as a refugee uh, in Sweden he can't come back because he's also seen as an extremist and uh, and Amari is this young man who also he's an Arabist, studied Arabic and then he goes to Saudi Arabia for five years at the time it was the government was completely unaware of anything and that uh, About the ideology that the official ideology of Saudi Arabia, which is Wahhabism, it's a very fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. So they send like young men there and they come back completely changed. And um, so Zofra is this young man who had studied in Saudi Arabia. And then later, this elder brother, goes to jail, I mean, gets jailed, and her husband disappears completely because he was also giving underground lessons, and Usman, the youngest brother, is like, yes, completely cut off and somewhere stranded outside, somewhere in the world, And, uh, and Zuhra's husband disappeared in 2004, and she hasn't heard from him since. Nobody knows what happened, and um, of course it's pretty much clear that it was a government abduction. And um, so I know all this about their family. And then because of my journalistic uh, experience, all the stories I was writing, very much focused on this because that was the main thing that was happening in Uzbekistan under Karimov. He basically his main I, uh, obsession, his main policy or whatever was to suppress this Islamist suppress. Yeah, he like so it was an endless campaign uh, rounding up these young people who were seen as like trying to uh, preach or study uh, extremists.
1: Uh, Islam. Could you tell? Could you tell us a little bit more? Because I think, especially for some listeners, maybe who aren't as familiar with this story. Um, tell us more about kind of um, the practice of Islam in the late Soviet Union and how these kind of changes, like, is this a new change in government attitude to be even more repressive under Karimov, or is this a continuation of Soviet policies? Um, mm-hmm. You know, how do you how do you see this? this moment in the 1980s 1990s and 2000s as the government deals with this question of islam because you know what i'm hearing is is kind of something interesting that like uh, the government is allowing um in the 90s and 2000s allowing these young men to go to saudi arabia but on the other hand they're kind of suppressing um religious practice so um yeah could you talk a little bit more about that
2: yeah, just to finish the first question, because um, yes, and when I see this man and knowing the whole story, family, and I also felt like, well, reporting on all this, I was kind of using these people for sound bites and uh, yes, just writing short stories because it's a wire service and then leaving them to whatever. <laughs> to their fates and uh, and I felt like I wasn't able to tell their story properly and understand them myself personally uh, what was happening to them what they were going through and just the whole question of what happened why this Islam, Islam became an issue and, uh, in Uzbekistan after the Soviet collapse so that's, that's why I decided to write this book and yes With religion, I think it's pretty um, simple because uh, in the Soviet Union there was this one ideology imposed on everyone but it was giving everyone uh, a clear picture of who you are, what your future is, what's good, what's wrong and uh, who our enemies are and everything Yes, we're Soviet citizens and building communism and things like that, and uh, but at the same time there was this uh, very uh, organized structure of life, economic structure. Yes, you were taken care of from early age. You go to this state-funded nurseries and, and then schools and then university. Everything is in re- you. You have medical. Uh, a service also free, and then you get your pension. And there are also san- sanatoriums for workers. Everything is taken care of, yeah, yeah? and uh, don't have to think about anything. And when all that's removed, and uh, people uh, start to look for something else, some new explanations of like a story about themselves and how to live and what what we are striving for in this life, and and. Um, because Islam had been like forcibly suppressed, this, I mean, by the Bolsheviks and all that history of violence, you know, like closure of mosques and repressing and jailing imams and everything. It stays, yes, and this a collective memory. And then when, um, and because. There were mosques, of course, later in the Soviet Union, but imams and all these preachers, they went through the Soviet system of Islamic education. Everything was controlled, what they said, and whatever. it was a, a system of its own, like the mm-hmm. Islam in the Soviet Union. So the people don't trust these Soviet imams, and, uh, and uh, they're ready to believe anything that um, this Islam is wrong, but they're ready to believe. Anybody who comes and says this is true Islam, this is how you have to practice, including very like minor details, how, how which way you turn when you pray, how you finish it, how you like whatever, nodding or rubbing your hands, or anything, yeah, all this, everything becomes an issue. Everything becomes like yes, disputed and debated and. We have this explosion of like, new preachers who uh, who are basically um, maybe just charismatic people and some and ambitious people with big egos who think they can lead people. They know the truth, and um, so that was the picture. Yeah, after the Soviet collapse, some young new preachers emerged. And, and then we have this completely ignorant, mostly ignorant uh, population and led by similarly, mostly similarly ignorant new creatures. It's all very complicated. I think every religion, um, uh, every ideology gets eventually distorted. And in many, many different ways, and there will be always uh, people who become too fanatical about one or another idea, or people who proclaim themselves to be these new interpreters of uh, better interpreters of one or another idea. We've seen that so many times in history. And, um, yeah, but and but people always want some kind of a story to tell <laughs> to themselves, <laughs> about themselves. And yeah, so it was just uh, inevitable, I think, what happened. Yeah, so some people fell for radical interpretations, some people fell for other, less radical interpretations of Islam, yeah. depending on who, where they were, coming
1: from and their own inclinations, yeah, where they lived, yeah. And so we, you've talked a little bit about kind of how um, individuals, communities in, in different parts of Uzbekistan um, kind of uh, dealt with this kind of opening up of some sort um, of, of religious practice um, but you, you kind of also mentioned that that came with um, potential for kind of corruption or um, misunderstanding of, of, um, Islamic practice, right. Um, which is understandable. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the government side of things. So, um, you know, you've mentioned, uh, the former president of Uzbekistan, Islam Karimov, uh, a little bit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about his right, like, when does he come to power, his background, and, um, also, share a little bit about why the government. Why you think the government's response, um, you know, by the mm-hmm. I guess by the late '90s and especially early 2000s was one um, that was especially harsh. I would say especially violent. Um, yeah. Given the Karim- given the stuff you talk about in the book. Yeah,
2: Karimov was appointed as like number one uh, official of Uzbekistan, which is the first secretary of the Uzbek Communist Party at the time in 1989, and he was appointed by Gorbachev, and uh, he he was, at the time, Karimov, um, a regional governor, like the regional boss of the Southern Surkhandaria region, and um, relatively unknown, but. Uh, the background to this is that prior to that, for several years, uh, there was a big um, a scandal around the Uzbek communist leadership, like unfolding because there was a huge corruption investigation into inflated cotton uh, production figures, and Uzbekistan was like a cotton plantation of uh, the Soviet Union, one of the. And uh, so that was the main crop, and uh, Moscow demanded more and more production. And uh, the officials in Uzbekistan were trying to meet those demands and those targets, which were going up and up. And there was, yes, a lot of uh, inflating and uh, bribery going on around that and going up to the Kremlin. And but so. For several years, there was this cotton case, hot coal uh, unfolding, and they were jailing hundreds of Uzbek officials for all that corruption around cotton production. And uh, so the Uzbek leadership was a bit like um, shaken by all that, and uh, and distrusted, and demoralized, and uh, needed a new and there was there were other things happening too like ethnic violence in the Turkana valley and everything so situation was pretty harsh in uzbekistan and then they want to appoint somebody new and they choose karimov how exactly that happened i don't know because it's all these channels and officials putting in words for each other no, but it, it is that he was seen as relatively clean uh, Maybe only because <laughs> he wasn't known at the time. So yes, in '89 he becomes uh, the first um, secretary of the Uzbek Communist Party, and then the Soviet Union collapses. Like by default, he is the like now the leader of a new independent nation, and uh, and. Uh, and then he starts maneuvering, starts finding, yes, yeah, starts thinking how to stay in power as long as possible, or at least not to lose it. Yes, immediately at the, at that moment. Yes, yeah, so um, because of Perestroika, uh, uh, the political situation in Uzbekistan was unstable. There were new like uh, parties emerging and. Uh, it, it all became very uh, kind of lively and animated, and um, and of course all the talk was about more freedom, more democracy, and everything, which meant for Karimov going and um, uh, facing elections, and um, yes, and uh, proving or himself as the leader or staying as a leader through yes going yeah through elections in a proper way and uh, so he was quite nervous at the time not sure and in uh, about yes his own future and he would be able to stay in power and he was maneuvering and then uh, the first presidential elections in um were scheduled for I mean this December, January 9, uh, for December 91 or January nine for December ninety one or January ninety two but end of ninety one and yes and then he goes around the country on this um, election tour. It goes to Thergana Valley and there he uh, there was this episode which I think um, many believe probably really set him like firmly against uh religion or Islam or any kind of attempt to like Islamic revival in Uzbekistan when he started seeing it as a huge, huge threat him, to himself, his own power that was in Namangan. He came and then when he was leaving um this, uh like some um, the huge demonstration started. Uh, people were young men were protesting. He's uh, not meeting them, but they were um, under the kind of leadership of someone, uh, this young man called Tahir Yildosh, who started uh, this vigilante group, who was very um, charismatic, but with a lot of anger in him. And he found a lot of following there. And he started basically preaching Islam to everyone. And they were trying to control, I mean, patrol streets and basically replace uh, the authorities there because, and based on Islamic values or and the rules. and. So his supporters started a huge demonstration and Karimov was forced to return and he faced this huge crowd and Tahir Yudosh humiliated him strongly in front of that crowd, like not letting him speak. And uh, and he could see how Tahir Yudosh had absolute control of uh, the crowd, which was quite angry and scary. And Karimov... made a lot of promises like uh, speaking to that crowd uh, up to like a referendum on an Islamic State and like Friday will be a free uh, like weekend and, and things like that and, and uh, so he was pretty shaken I think uh, by that meeting and uh, he goes back and then after once he is secured his position as president, he slowly starts his like revenge campaign against um, all independent Islamic preachers and yes, and eventually it becomes like, yeah, they start targeting uh, leaders of course pretty soon will be forced to flee to Tajikistan which was uh, I mean, the civil war at the time, and uh, which was also very frightening to uh, Karimov. Uh, he made him very insecure. and then he started targeting other creatures in Sergana Valley, um, disappearing them and everything. Uh, and then eventually, uh, because the message from him, from the leader, was like absolute ruthless treatment of these men and all suspicious people. So it eventually became a very, very bloody, uh, cruel, absolutely atrocious campaign. And uh, security services, interior uh, ministry, they were all given absolutely all power to do anything. And think uh, he unleashed the lowest instincts and in people and... Um, Yes, and, and torture and suffering, all that, all those methods they used, they were horrific. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50%
1: off. And and these these policies kind of continue to develop in the 1990s um, as, as the 1990s progress. And as you say, like the State Security Bureau, the SNB, which is kind of the um, successor of the, the Uzbekistan uh, KGB from Soviet period, um, is also really involved in this and... Um, Yeah, you even devote um, one specific chapter to this really infamous prison um, that's built, I think, in 1998 or 1999, um, but which, you know, today, even today in Uzbekistan is pretty notorious. So this is in um, kind of the northwest part of Uzbekistan in Karakal, Pakistan. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, this prison and your kind of experience there as a journalist? And, and what does this kind of, how does this testify to the kind of um, extreme uh, repression that that the, the Uzbek state was engaged in at the time? Yes, by
2: 1999, uh, the campaign like took the shape of a serious like uh, uh, and uh, of you know, for a serious form, uh, and the jails were. Filling up with these alleged extremists, and so they opened this new prison in Karakal, Pakistan in northwestern Uzbekistan. And it's uh, it's uh, like a, it's a very arid uh, climate, very harsh climate. And uh, the site is a former site, unfinished or abandoned site of the Soviet space project um, called Boran. Where it was a spaceship that which was planned to rival shuttle the US shuttle. And uh, so this abandoned concrete site with few buildings for the military and it was turned into a prison, just like... Um, mm-hmm. um, It became known uh, in 2002 when news uh, came that two of the inmates uh, were practically boiled to death there and tortured with boiling water on, and 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 this prison was specifically for these extremists, uh, religious extremists, alleged and. um, and of course, there were lots of questions about what was going on there, and um, from relatives of the inmates, we were hearing that yeah, it's absolutely harsh, the uh, inhumane treatment there, and uh, people were dying and tortured to death and regularly, and we as journalists really wanted to know what was going on there, but. At the time, uh, the United States had a military base and air base in Uzbekistan after 9/11, 2001. So, they are, in November 2001, they already started arriving there in, in southern Uzbekistan, next to the yeah. Afghan border. So. Uzbek government, Karimov's government, was cooperating with the U.S. government in this war on terror. And um, at the same time, of course, the U.S. government was talking to Karimov about issues of democracy and human rights, and uh, uh, so to speak. And, um, and because and a few journalists were allowed to work without much... Uh, hindrance, uh, meaning if they were working for international organizations like uh, me included. So, somehow in 2003 we got the permission to visit just like just because of this. From both sides, the US and Uzbek governments from both sides were trying to make this appearance of working on these issues. You know? So we were allowed to visit. Well, I've, I find that any prison is a um, is an inhumane thing. Yeah, imprisonment of one person by another person. I don't know how, but when you are inside a facility like that and you imagine people living there day after day for years, um, especially in a place like Jaslik. In like it's desert, salty air, salty soil, nothing grows there. And then you fly to Naukous, this Karakal, Pakistan's capital. Then you drive hundred kilometers to a railway station, which is very <laughs> one hut in the middle of the desert. And then the train comes and you travel and to this settlement called Jaslik. And after that, you there is no road leading to the prison itself. You have to you need a four wheel car uh, yeah, vehicle to reach there. Like, drive across the desert for a couple of hours. I can't remember now, like several hours, shaking and inside. And then you arrive there. And, uh, yes, it was very hard. To, but of course, like everything was prepared for our visit. Uh, everything is clean. Beds are made up. All the inmates lined up and told what to say and everything. But still, some inmates managed to whisper to us a few things and. Uh, and we were always accompanied by the prison boss and by another official who traveled from from Tashkent and there were all the you wardens know, and whatever people working there around us. So not that much freedom, but still, just to see this place—it was important, important—and um, to see all these young people from another. Kind of end of the country, which is like 2,000 kilometers or something, coming from this lush green valley, living in, in this box behind the bars, was uh, difficult. But of course, we couldn't get too much, but we, from inmates that did get enough, I think. But the main thing was to get the feel of the place. And, yeah, but I think... It was announced last year or something that the new government has closed it. Then, some rights activists are saying they're questioning it, but so I'm not sure what happened. But definitely, I mean, looks like it might be kind of uh, close to being completely closed or something. But the government, this new government, understands that it's too big. Problem image problem to keep this just like there and because yeah too many bad things are, I think, yeah, associations and yeah and I think there's no need no need to keep people in a place like that I mean what is that yeah
1: and I kind of wanted to ask about that I'm gonna to try to tie a couple of things together and and I'd be curious to hear what you have to say. Because I know another, um, you know, you you, you had this uh, visit to the uh, Just Lick prison. You also um, you were there during these Andijan events that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but I but I am curious, you know, because you're talking now about the here's the way of government and and how they're trying to change their international image. Um, what role? You, you, you commented on this briefly, but I'd like to hear more about it. You, you kind of talked about, okay, the United States after 9-11 has this relationship with Uzbekistan. On the one hand, they're pushing the war on terror. On the other hand, they're kind of nominally demanding Uzbekistan um, kind of conform to some standards of human rights, etc. And I mean, you, you kind of indicated that there, there's some kind of contradiction here. What role, in, from your perspective, what role did the events of 9 11 in this, the kind of international agreements between Uzbekistan and kind of just the international climate uh, contribute to contribute to or justify um, Karima's kind of repression of, of Islamic practice in Uzbekistan? I
2: think Karima pretty much, yeah, uh, it's it clear to me that. Karimov benefited from the U.S. war on terror because he could say, look, I am fighting terrorism at home, too. Yeah. And, uh, I am part of this yeah. global fight. And, um, and I think oh. when I talk about 9-11 and what happened after that and this war on terror, I think it's, it's a similar thing to what uh, how Karimov used uh, Perceived Islamist threat, terror threat, uh, to abuse power. And in the same way, um, the United States abused power, yes, to, mm-hmm, in the name of fighting terrorism. We know Guantanamo, we know Abu Ghraib, we know, you know, this, this collateral damage, which numbers in like hundreds of thousands of people. And millions of displaced, and hundreds of thousands of people dead, and millions displaced, and everything. And, and we know about the U.S. cooperation with like close ties with Saudi Arabia, or in Yemen, and everything. There is just too much. And it's yeah, uh, yeah. So it is uh, sad. It is disappointing that there is. That this has become, yeah, a way this Islamism has become a, a convenient enough, uh, a scarecrow and uh, an excuse for some <laughs> powers mm-hmm. to serve their ends, and um, there are just too many, too many uh, victims, innocent victims in this war on terror that's the parallel that i see that yeah after 9 11 abuse of power and yeah, to his own ends and the u.s or western abuse of power to their own ends which is very sad <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah and and um these I mean, you kind of see a connection there, right, too, with um, these events that, that happened in Ndijan in, in 2004, 2005. Um, I think some listeners will be familiar with this. This is kind of a a well-known episode in, in especially U.S.-Uzbekistan relations. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about those events, um, who was involved, how things developed, and also your personal experiences, because you, um, I think, with the Associated Press, quickly go to Andijan once once news of this comes out. Um, what did you experience there? Um, and yeah, ironically, this this um, you know we just mentioned that you can you can kind of draw a line between nine uh, eleven U.S. war on terror and uh, Karima's response to these events, but ironically, this actually ends up um kind of tempor- up until very recently ending official relations between the two countries um, but yeah could you sorry could you tell us a little bit more about your experiences um in addition
2: yeah the anzeshon is a, a very interesting story because uh, in that post soviet islamic revival like in my book i look at what was happening in tashkent there are students who find imams to follow and there is this zuhra's family and they're kind of urban uh, young people who go to study abroad and come back with this knowledge and they try to spread it and and that's one story and they end up being blacklisted and but in Andijan, it's a it's an emergence of completely unique uh, sect Islamic sect uh, like uh, on this uh, like Uzbek soil I mean, and um, and the leader Akromil um was a very charismatic another charismatic person who just study uh, read Quran, In Uzbek and decided that now he knows all the answers, like he knows how to create a fair, good society and uh, how everything, all the roles should be distributed and everything, and uh, how to run economy, open businesses, and all these close ties between the creation of cells and the structure of power and recruiting new members and. And they become really a big in uh, Nandijan. In, in they run businesses, successful and everything. And until in yeah, 2004, uh, the Gapurtis begin to crack down on that group. And they arrest like 23 leaders. And Akron was already in jail. And he was basically still running it. Um, the whole thing from jail. And, uh, and in 2004, uh, these three, 23 leaders who are officially like, yes, owners of businesses, and uh, but they are part of the structure, Akramia, or they don't call themselves like that, but this sect uh, part of the structure. So all the employees are members of the sect, and their families are members of the sect, and they have their own system of like, Managing finances and everything. So, in 20, 2005, in February, they go on trial these 23 leaders and um, and their supporters, because it's a big network and very closely need family connections and everything and and their livelihoods, because they work for these businesses. They begin to protest quietly every day. They come out and stand outside this court. Uh, Rural building, uh, silently, uh, quietly, peacefully protesting. And then, by the time uh, uh, the judge was to announce the verdict, they were, of course, accused of religious extremism and anti constitutional activity. Uh, yes, look, the sect or their supporters are ready to revolt, and they do that. They storm a prison. It was a night of 13 May 2005 and then um, seized the local city administration building city administration building and um, free their leaders and um, yes and that early I was in Tashkent, and uh, and a colleague called me early early in the morning about six or five. Uh, on the 13th of May, is saying something's going on in, in Antijan And I called one of the activists there with the sect with whom I had spoken before. And he said, we are in control of the city, which sounded very interesting. And of course, immediately, I called the photographer. We're going to the airport. And my sister is also a journalist. and I called her and we all... Rushed to the airport, and we managed to reach Antijan by noon because we have to fly, and then drive um, because direct flights were already cancelled. And um, yeah, we reached there, and yes, we found that the town was completely empty; only the central square full of people, and the building is in rebel control. Which was quite surreal. But, and later, um, after five o'clock, yes, the government troops moved in and started shooting without any um, warning. And and the square was full of young children, women, and um, yeah, unarmed. But the rebels were armed, uh, had some rifles. And something, more of cocktails, and they had some hostages and everything. But, yeah. But nothing looked like a serious operation. They didn't look like, you know, militants uh, who been through whatever serious training or anything. But they did that out of desperation, I think. And I think it was inevitable that Karima would uh, crack down very badly. And uh, so people were shot, they, they were running in all directions. And I happened to be there in the square too when it all started. And of course, we, I and a local guy who happened to be there speaking to me, a young boy who just uh, helped me find shelter and then took me to his place. He's family for the night because we couldn't go anywhere. And the next morning Yeah, went back to the square and like counting bodies and looking at all the blood and uh, on the streets. Uh, yeah.
1: And then pretty quickly um the the authorities basically block off the city, right? Yeah.
2: After- yeah, it was clear we we were told to clear off, and uh, because they said we can't guarantee you that you won't be taken hostages by terrorists, which, which could be anything, like uh, anything could happen to us and then it would be blamed on terrorists. And,
1: um, who, who told you? We had
2: to leave it, yeah. Uh, because we were calling, of course, the authorities for comments, uh, officials. I was there with my sister and her, at the time, her uh, boyfriend, who was a journalist, too, and uh, yeah, so we were this small group, three of us, and uh, in one of our contacts with authorities, they said that it's best if we left. But yeah, of course, it was clear that, and then the uh, city was closed, and uh, all... Um, yeah, crackdown continued, of course, like on um, like members, everyone took
1: part. In it, so, yeah. and, and in the book, you talk about this was also pretty interesting because, I mean, you you were there, you knew about these kind of this organization uh, led by, or led from prison by Akram Yildoshev. Um You know, you kind of compared this group with its own aspirations mm-hmm. to um, you actually differentiated it from other, other um, kind of Islamic organizations that, that the state did not look fondly on, um, Hizbid Tahrir, the Islamic movement in Uzbekistan, and, and you differentiate these. But nonetheless, you also talk about the way that the Uzbek government, from the moment of this violent crackdown, um, started to build a story uh, to explain their actions. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Of course, it was uh, inevitable that the government would present it as a terrorist revolt that they wanted to seize power and uh, build an Islamic state. Um, and uh, but at the time we knew very little. I knew nothing about that network, about the existence of this sect. We only knew these arrests of these arrest twenty three business people, and because they were all denying like while I was there talking to her when they were no the leaders of the uprising like this they, they admitted that they are an organization um, but later um, uh, all the members who fled the refugees, everything, they all refused to reveal any details and And uh, we talked to the leaders of this uprising, and they said they are an organization. And one of their demands was released from prison of Akron Yudashev. So the connection was clear, they weren't hiding it. But when I came into all this, I didn't know about exactly how it all came about, and uh, how they were structured, and everything. They were quite, yeah, very secretive, and later it was quite hard to find out more about it. It was only through, like, talking to people who had been in close contact with them, had business dealings with them, and knew them from inside the group, who told me Uh, about them. Like verifying that when I got it through two sources. Yeah, and, we, and another source which talked to me off the record. Then I felt like mm, it looks like yes, this is yeah, this is what they were. And um, but yeah, uh, yeah, they are different. And because I am you, this Islamic movement of Uzbekistan we emerged only uh, after uh, it basically became as such outside of Uzbekistan. Because Les well, stahirdosh and his followers, they fled to Tajikistan. During the war there uh, they become even more militant. Yes there is weapons, there is this environment of uh, of war environment, hostilities and everything. And then when the Tajik war ended, they went to, the, to, to Afghanistan and then the, yes, they became linked with other groups there, the Taliban, and then later splint, splintering and going to Pakistan. They were, yes, already outside and part of a bigger kind of regional picture of militant organizations. And his um, Akhir, and yes, it's also, it came from outside and uh, and they non-violent. They say non-violent. They want an Islamic state eventually, but uh, and they also operate through cells. It's very secretive. Uh, yeah, and it's spread in Uzbekistan. But Tahir Yul, uh, no Akrom the founder of his group, he had been a member of his here before and got disillusioned with them because he disagreed on some points, and but then. He created his own but he took some his buthi ideas and structure a little bit and uh, yeah and added his own things
1: so now i, I want to ask kind of um, a bigger question here you know you've been kind of um first through your journalism and then i think just kind of through reflection and personal experience i know for instance um you've been with this question for a long time but um, I know after the end of John events you also managed to um, follow some of the refugees that, that managed to leave Uzbekistan through Kazakhstan um, through you know, the United Nations refugee kind of resettlement agency. Um, my bigger question is kind of um, how you're thinking um, about, the role of Islam, the the way that the state engages with Islam in Uzbekistan, and, and has done so since the nineties, uh, um, has that changed over time? Especially as you've had kind of time to rethink some of these things. Um, you know, you personally as journalists, like, has your uh, relationship to this question changed, or has it stayed consistent over time? Um, you know, did did reflecting on all of these events and and Um, Talking to different groups and kind of um, coming to your own conclusions. I mean, did that reshape your thinking in some way? Um, Because I'm trying to get a bigger sense of how normal Uzbeks in Uzbekistan um, might approach similar issues.
2: The main question is the question of freedom um, and uh, our inability, our inability to be. Really free, because in the Soviet Union we were indoctrinated. And Soviet people were indoctrinated by uh, one ideology. But when that ideology was removed, people were immediately ready to embrace other ideologies, which could be as like uh, restrictive and um, suffocating and limiting and intolerant of other um, ideas and as a communism, for example, or a Soviet ideology. So, I mean, when we're given freedom, we, to choose what to believe in, what do we choose? We choose something that becomes our new trap. Yes, new cage, and uh, I think that's the main question. And uh, Islam or not Islam, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, when we mention this Islam all the time, but what is Islam? Who can define it? Define it? Who can say? Yeah, because you you use this word and you mean it means something. To you, I use this word, it means something else to me, and, and take someone from this uh, small village in the Valley and uh, Islam, it means something else to them. And uh, that's why we use these words and we define this as Islamic revival or this Islamic sect or whatever. It doesn't matter. I think it only uh, hinders our understanding. Um, yeah, we can't see the big picture. we can't see <laughs> we can't get a, anywhere close I mean, to the truth for understanding these people. I think all these uh, notions and definitions, they don't help. yeah, there is no one Islam, <laughs> there is no like uh, I think we're just all uh, vulnerable and uh, two different um, misleading concepts and and we are full of our own preconceptions. We approach everything uh, through our kind of prism of our prejudices and our limited knowledge about one thing or another and we draw conclusions and everything. That's why I don't really want to... Yeah, even, I'm not an expert in Islam, but the, and while working on this book, I really tried hard to <laughs> read, yes, I read books, and explanations, and academic books, and everything, but, and I understood that it's not possible to define it, and it's not possible to know, um, yeah. As well as any other ideology, I think we, we can. What what happened in Uzbekistan? Why all these radical groups? Or it is quite a simple uh, human psychology, which is same everywhere. Yeah, and uh, somebody starts preaching something. They um, and they believe in their that they're right that others are wrong, and and that sense of righteousness and that sense of knowing the truth, and then they begin to preach that to others, and uh, and if they're ignorant enough, they will believe you, Uh, and then you, and they end up, yes, and they were told that this is Islam, and you can tell them this is this or this is that, and they will believe, yeah, so... Yeah, we can talk about all the Islam being divided into different schools, madhabs, and that uh, what Quran is, how it was written, and this hadith and everything. But at the end of the day, yes, it doesn't help <laughs> to understand anything. Yeah, we just like mm-hmm, we're just um, ignorant people uh, with our limited. Uh, minds and full of uh, conditioning and prejudices. Yeah, we can't judge others. That's what I understood about this whole thing. Uh, Is it Islamism? Okay, because we, we use these words. Okay, I use them too, but for me it doesn't mean anything. It's just people believing in some I don't know some idea that was like imposed on them, or because because they can't see beyond that. At the moment, they can't see. Yeah.
1: Thank you again, Bagilla, for sharing, um, and and thank you again for um, not only sharing that, but but talking to us about your book um and i would definitely encourage listeners um journalists academics um anyone interested in central asia to to give it a read um and i think they'll certainly get get a lot out of it um and usually at this point we're we're coming to the near near the end of the interview but i usually like to give listeners or um the interviewees kind of a chance to talk about either some new projects um of give them an opportunity to re- reflect a little bit on uh, the future of, you know, this is the, the Central Asian Studies channel, so the future of Central Asian Studies, what they'd like to see happen, or uh, to recommend uh, some, some new reading uh, to our listeners. So um, if you if you have anything you'd like to share, we'd, we'd love to hear it.
2: In Central Asian Studies, I would like to see more researchers from the region itself, and uh, and I also I really would like them to be more independent and uh, because yes yes the fund, there is this funding issue and often it happens that they can and they seek of course funding in from Western institutions and uh, and uh, they go to the West and I but I but I really hope that they will. Stay independent in their research, and because in the West, what I mean to say, I don't want them to look at the region from a Western perspective. Westernized, there is a danger, yes, because of funding, because of like they in these institutions and they have mentors and everybody who will be guiding them, and um, but. I think we really need, um, yes, our researchers who are willing to also free themselves from their own conditioning and see see that we have, of course, the Soviet past, there is this, and then, uh, and after the Soviet collapse, we started looking like up to the West, and maybe a bit and, uh,